Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one small slice of American writing using the Library of America. Um, and in this episode, I will be finishing up my look at Willa Cather's novel, My Antonia. Uh, this is the second episode on this novel. I'll be looking at parts two, three, four, and five of it. And part one, the book one of My Antonia covers about half the novel and the other four parts cover the remainder. Um, so that's that's sort of how it's divided. It's really a very, it's a novel of nostalgia. So it's right that the novel spends so much time in the character's youth and his early memories of, of Antonia. In fact, maybe we could play with the idea here that there's a, a bit of a false narration or a you know how reliable is our narrator we do the, the whole novel is set up as a man writing down later in his life his memories of a girl that he fell in love with as a, as a young boy really and then the you know how he remembered her through a time right and of course we tend to idealize our past especially if we have fond memories of that past and certainly our character is doing that throughout the novel but most the big chunk of the first part of the novel is set in uh, about a one-year period of time in which our main character was, I think, about 10 to 11 years old, where he meets this family of Bohemians, yeah, the Shamradas, and the most important member of this family from our character Jim's point of view is Antonia. Um, and she will, throughout the rest of the novel, get connected to this land, get connected to this location, even though, for various reasons, their, their lives go in different directions, right? And that's, that's a common experience as well, right? We, we have connections we make as young people that don't hold together, right? Our first loves always fall apart. Now, they never really get involved romantically, although Jim always has deep emotional connections to, uh, to, this, to this woman. Oh, she was a girl when they met, but um, she's a little bit older than he is. She, I think she's 14 when he's 10, so there's there's that age difference. That's I don't think it's that significant, but it does play some role in kind of making it difficult for them to see each other as mar you know possible marriage mates. Now, what I'm going to do in this episode, in what remains, is go over the second part of the novel, and I, I got a couple takes on it. There is, of course, the the basic theme of this novel, which is nostalgia, the connection to the land, and this deep desire of our main character, Jim, as he's writing the story, to reconnect to the land that he would lived in for a short period of time, but always wants to return to. But the modern world seems to be pulling him to the cities and to the modern world. Um, and then, so that that's kind of obvious. That's on the face value of the novel. And that, that's why he has this nostalgia for Antonia so much is because he associates her with the land, right? She's the one, also the one who literally stays behind in the countryside. And she faces some hurdles in the later part of her life that makes it almost impossible for her to, to not stay to the land. She ends up with a, a fairly happy life, I'd say, but it's a hard life. It's, it's, not, it's not one of leisure. And it's, from Jim's point of view, I, he always thinks that Antony had more in her and could have done more with her life, it seems. But at the same time, he always ties her to the land itself. So it's also partially how he sees her. Um, and, you know, in a way, Antony is a kind of a hard character to get at. Because we always, we always see him through these eyes of this rather flawed na narrator. But uh, I'll talk a little bit about that, of course. But a theme I really want to hit on, especially in when I look at book two of the novel, which is called The Hired Girls, is is just a more materialistic or even kind of a, a 
kind of a, 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 a yeah, materialist, almost a Marxist kind of reading of the of the role of capitalism in this world that's being described here and on the characters' lives, right? Part one is the Shimerdas. We talked about that in the last episode, and that's about this Bohemian family who comes in to the American frontier and has fairly has a number of conflicts. One is they're very naive about the economic system of the United States. They they expect to have people help them. They don't really expect to be taken advantage of, but they're taken advantage of. They're not always helped as much as they'd like to be, and they are feel this very deep loneliness that they didn't expect, um, even though they know they're going to be they're immigrants. They did feel they'd be entering a world that was a little bit, maybe at least in this sense of being cooperative, a little bit more like home. home. But in fact, it was a dog-eat-dog world in the American frontier, and they get thrown into that. So they're certainly in a capitalist environment, um, but they try to make it as, as landowners, right? And when that fails, some of them go off to become hired hands. And there's a really an important character here, actually, and that is Antonia's brother. Antonia's brother basically inherits the farm when her father dies, and he becomes the head of the, of the family. I think he's a little bit younger than Antonia, but he becomes the man of the family, and he makes decisions. And he doesn't really seem to have these bohemian values. He's been Americanized, not just in, you know, culturally or anything like that, but really Americanized in his, his attitude towards wealth and land and property and, and business. He's much more of a businessman kind of person, and we see that really in how he interacts with Antonia sending her off to be a hired hand in book two of the novel. But then we get to actually, in part two, see the experiences of these young immigrant women when they can no longer really, they're not really valuable on the farm anymore, so they have to go into the city. And in this case, they go to Blackhawk, they become the, the titular hired girls. That's what book two is called. And they have a really kind of interesting cultural life in, in the city. But they're also working for wages. So they've, they've kind of made this transition from being daughters of farmers to wage laborers. And it's maybe we could say that it's parallel to the experience that happened in New England, where they, like those girls who worked in the little mills, you know, they, they left the farm and went to work in the factory for a while until they made up some money and then they get married a little bit later. But this is kind of their entryway into the capitalist economy. Now, Antonia is going to go back to the land and become a kind of a farming housewife uh, or farm farm wife. I'm not sure what the right term there. But she is going to go back, but other characters don't. And, and other immigrant girls really do become urban, working class people. So that sort of sets up where we're at, I think, when we open up book two of My Antonia. As I said, it's called The Hired Girls. It's really about... Uh, our characters' experiences in Blackhawk, and then the experience of the really the proletarization, I would say, of of these immigrant girls. Um, so the setting for this is simply that Jim moves to Blackhawk. The reason this happens is his grandparents they just want to give up the farm. They don't really feel they can work the farm anymore. They're too old, and so they decide to to sell the farm, take the money to retire in in the town in Blackhawk. Now Blackhawk's not a huge city, right? It's still a frontier town, but it's it's town. It's got town life, right? So it's a contrast. It's even contrasted morally a lot by a lot, some of our characters. Is is a place of kind of sin and problems, right? Here it's symbolized by a dance hall that gets built. Uh, I think it's it, it's Italian immigrants that bring this dance hall to Blackhawk, and that becomes a site of sin for at least from the perspective of the older older people. 
Um, now, meanwhile, as Jim moves to Blackhawk, this is three years after the events of book one, Ambrose, who is Antonia's brother, takes over the Shimerda farm and eventually starts renting out Antonia as a farmhand, as a farm worker, a very male role, right? That's a role we've seen before in this novel, but it's always been men who carried on that role. Um, now, eventually, the Jim's grandparents hear about this and they don't like it they're, they're a bit offended in fact they're kind of moral busybodies um, quite often in this in the story and here they don't want Antonia to be working for you know a farmhand they want to bring her to the city so they help arrange that she'll be kind of a, a domestic servant for the Harlings who are a neighboring family and so Jim's grandparents set that up and so Antonia has actually become like a neighbor for a while of Jim and you know, for a while they they were kind of going their separate ways, but Anthony is brought back. But now he she's she's detached from the land that Jim always attached her to. So Jim always sees her as part of the land or an extension of that. And his love for that land, you know, that he only experienced for three years, right, is deep within him. And it's always Anthony is always there. Um, but now he's experiencing Anthony as a city girl. So it's a little bit of a change. The Harleen's family are Norwegian. So the, we've got a lot more immigrant families here. Um, in fact, that's not the last one. We, it's really kind of cool the way she describes this very diverse frontier that's a, really a, like a melting pot, to, to use the cliche term. But uh, Ambrose has really become really greedy, and that's what we're told by our narrator. Really, it seems to me, becoming a true American, something her father couldn't do. His father couldn't handle life in American, American culture, but his son seems to have no trouble with this. And he comes off as really petty. This is on page 809 of the Library of America version. Um, quote, they had a long argument with Ambrose about Antonia's allowance for clothes and pocket money. It was his plan that every cent of his sister's wages should be paid over to him each month, and he would provide her with such clothing as he thought necessary. When Mrs. Harding told him firmly that she would keep $50 a year for Antonia's own use, he declared they wanted to take his sister to town and dress her up and make a fool of her. Mrs. Harding gave us a lively account of how Ambrose's behavior throughout the interview. How he kept jumping up and putting on his cap as if he was through with the whole business, and how his mother tweaked his coattails and prompted him in Bohemian. Mrs. Harling finally agreed to pay $3 a week for Antonia's services, good wages in those days, and to keep her in shoes. So he kind of wins that debate, uh, but he wins it by, by basically pushing off the cost of maintaining Antonia's life onto her employers, which maybe isn't a bad thing if you think about it. Um, so Antonia eventually gets very close to the Harleens and, you know, Antonia, now she's like, well, I don't know, 56, 15, 18, 18 years old, um, 15 at the end of book one. So she's, she's, you know, she's reaching adulthood. And that's a big theme in part in this book two as well. The hired girls is that these are becoming women. Jim is becoming a man. Their interests become much more about romance and sex and, and, Possible marriage is talked about a lot. There's a lot of kind of dating and courtship and sexual innuendo throughout this section. In fact, pretty much for the rest of the novel, there's a lot of sexual overtones um, in the story. Um, now, Jim never really sexualizes Antonia. There's another character who arrives called named Lena, Lena Limber, who he does. Um, but he has romantic interests with both of them and uh, never really dates Antonia, though. He does date Lena eventually. Um, so they're growing up, right? Um, so this is first suggested, I think, with Antonia getting close to the Harleen's son, Charlie. 
Yet the fathers here and the immigrant fathers in Black Hawk are presented in a bit as a in a bit of an odd way, and there's some sexual politics here that I think Catherine's trying to get at. Um, she writes, most Black Hawk farmer fa fathers, sorry, no, most Black Hawk fathers had no personal habits outside their domestic ones. They paid the bills, pushed the baby carriage at office hours, moved the sprinkler about over the lawn, and took the family driving on Sunday. Mr. Harding, therefore, seemed to me autocratic and imperial in his ways. He walked, talked, put on his glove, shook hands like a man who felt that he had power. He was not tall, but he carried his head so haughtily that he looked a commanding figure, and there was something daring and challenging in his eyes. I used to imagine that the nobles of whom Antonia was always talking probably looked very much like Christian Harling. Anyways. It's, it's presented as a very harsh marriage, and Mrs. Harling is not the most enviable character here. Uh, well, next we have uh, the arrival of Lena, Lena Lingard, another immigrant woman, and she comes to the city to work as a hired hand, too, as a dressmaker. Um, and Jim immediately has this infatuation with 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 Lena. And as I've already talked about, there there's this contrast with Lena as of sexual interest and Antonia as kind of more the soulmate of of Jim. We get another Christmas scene. We had a Christmas scene in book one, and here we have the city Christmas scene, and there's actually a couple here. So if you like to look at the, the history of Christmas, you actually get two for one in my Antonia. Uh, when's the last time we talked about Christmas in this podcast? I guess it would be when we looked at uh, the pioneers, uh, the James Fenimore Cooper novel, which has a Christmas scene. That one even has Santa Claus. Here, but here they're they're going Christmas shopping for a while. Uh, Antonia does begin to miss the country a little bit, um, but we're given another harsh winter. The the previous winter we experienced in that first year that Jim comes to Nebraska was harsh, and of course it led to this tragic the the death of Mister Shermada. But here we get another harsh winter, but from an urban urban point of view. We have we get a wonderful scene. I don't know how much detail I want to go into it, but it's a wonderful scene where we meet a black pianist. And you know, Willa Cather doesn't have that many black characters. Maybe partially because of the place she writes about. But we got this guy. His name is Blind. And, um, let me check the double check the name. Blind Dernalt. In in fact, he he has he has a, he's a background as a slave. And we get over a couple pages here his whole life story, which is. Um, you know, it's, it's worth taking a look at. It's on page 830, 831. He was ugly. He has these kind of, he has, he's blind. And, but he be, he's able to become this, this wonderful musician. And, you know, he, he's entertaining these hired girls. And it's a, it's a moment of kind of interracial, I don't, I don't want to say solidarity, but at least, you know, a public amusement that, that's displayed here as interracial. And he's playing for these immigrant girls. And, you know, that's a whole theme that I think gets into kind of what whiteness scholars try to write about, you know, like how the Irish became white, those kinds of narratives. And when you have stories like that, that perhaps complicates that narrative. You know, how, what, I guess what the real question I'm getting at is what was the process by which immigrants were from Europe or introduced to American race relations and assimilated into it and acculturated into it, right? How did these immigrants become from being Bohemian or Austrian or Lithuanian or Russian or whatever to being white and I don't know that's probably demanding too much of the text to try to get that all out of here but it's just a question I had when I was reading that story um, and it's at this point in the tale though 
right after they have this dancing that the dance culture of Black Hawk becomes domesticated in a way, if that's the right term. It, it comes, it's through like a dancing pavilion that's introduced, a dancing hall brought in by some Italians who, who set it up. And then from that point on, it's, it's really Antonia, Lena, and then this other hired hand girl, Tiny. And she's going to have kind of a tragic fate. Um, in fact, Antonia and Tiny, depending on your point of view, both have kind of bleak fates. Um, but, you know, Tiny especially. They become really regulars at this dancing pavilion. And then our narrator gives us uh, a bit of a pondering, some thoughts on the social situation and the social uh, standing of these immigrant girls and thinks about their, their potential to marry, um, their potential to have upward mobility, how they were seen, you know, were they, you know, he even, she was even, well, it's Jim writing it, but it's Cather, of course, is the, the author. Um, quote, physically, they were, and these were the country girls, they were a race apart, and out-of-doors work had given them a vigor which, when they got over their first sight and should come into town, developed into a positive carriage and freedom of movement and made them conspicuous among Black Hawk women. So this is part of the, if we want to do a materialist analysis, right, this is part of the impact of wage labor on, on women, right? If you're working on the farm, you basically don't have any cash, you don't have any money, right? And that was a big fighting point between Ambrose and the Harleans was Antonia's cash. Would she have money that she could take with her into, you know, into enjoying urban life? And part of that is like these dance hall things. There's a really wonderful book. It's a short one by a historian named Kathy Pice about, it's called Cheap Amusements. And it's, it, it kind of deals with this question of the impact of wage labor on these immigrant women. And it, in many ways, it was liberatory because it allowed them to be active in the urban culture, you know, as consumers, whether it was shopping or going to dance halls or drinking. And sometimes even if they didn't have money, they could engage in this stuff through through treating, through dating, right, by dating men who would then buy things for her. And there's kind of, there's even this term charity girl for where, you know, it gets a little bit more sex for a date kind of relationship. But these were ways for women to participate in these public amusements. And a lot of that is suggested in this chapter. It's actually chapter nine of book two. Uh, the problem, though, is that the Antonia and these other hired girls start to get a bad reputation right and in fact so anyways mrs harleen says you know you can't go there anymore and then she says well i'd rather just quit and they, her independence is really expressed there and she's going to go get a job with this um this guy the money lender of the town who is uh wick cutter is his name and he's actually the guy who screwed over the was it the russian pete or whatever his name was uh in book one right got him into debt and then he ended up having to become a wage worker as well another character proletarianized by this frontier experience but she just says i'll go work for him and it's really a bold thing to say because he has such a bad reputation as essentially someone who seduces or rapes it's, it's hinted that he rapes and by the end of book one it's pretty clear that he does he's fully capable of trying to rape the women that work for him you know, he's got this reputation in town and she says, I'm going to work for him, right? Because that's how much she values her, her freedom and her autonomy. And so there's a really a culture war at, at the heart of this of book two. And I think that's what makes it one of the more memorable and powerful parts of, of this tale, especially if you're interested in the transition of, of this culture. 
Um, meanwhile, while the girls are getting more and more involved in the culture of the dance hall, Jim gets more and more isolated and he starts to miss Antonia more and more. They do go out from time to time and see each other. And Antonia, he, he kind of teases Antonia and says, like, he's thinking of dating Lena and Lena lets him kiss her. And Antonia gets puffed up about that and says, you stay away from the immigrant girls, you know, the, from those hired girls. Yet he's having dreams and he, he's got this kind of dream of the land all the time throughout the novel. But he starts to actually have erotic dreams, essentially, of, of Lena. So um, he's really sexualizing her. But he has this really love for Antonia. So these are really two separate aspects of his of his desire. And I suppose that's true of a lot of, of young men um, growing up. Um, anyways, Jim eventually graduates from high school. He actually gives an address, like commencement address at the school, and he was inspired from this address um, by the experiences of Mr. Shermarda. And this is something Antonia realizes when he's given the speech. And they have they share a, a moment in which they you know, they share this memory about uh, Antonia's father. But mostly at this point, Jim is preparing for college, um, and meanwhile having all these sexual fantasies about Lena. Now, the final events of book two of My Antonia really surround Antonia, Cutter, and Jim. And Antonia is just worried about Cutter. I think Cutter, her, her boss at that point, had gone out of town, but he said something like, you got to keep some precious stuff in, in your bedroom. And she's a bit, she thinks that's a bit odd and weird. And she says, maybe you sleep in my bed because I'm a bit worried about Cutter what's on his mind so i'll sleep in your bed and you sleep in mine and so they just swap bedrooms and then cutter actually does come one day essentially to rape antonia and then it's jim there and they have a brawl and you know essentially this was a rape attempt on antonia so it's pretty horrifying um but that that's how book two ends and i mean that's i think part of what's going on here is this contrast between the reality of life as a young working class woman who doesn't have financial means, who's dependent on wage labor, you know, and, you know, Jim still has this kind of idealized view of, of Antonia as a strong woman tied to the land, right, bound by the land. And the reality of life as a woman is very different, right? There, there are certain choices she needs to make, you know, about if she's going to marry, she's going to have kids. And as we'll see later on, you know, bad things happen to her because she has to make these these choices. It's not you know, Lena, I guess, is able to live it up more as a as the single woman, um, but she she doesn't have her brother to uh, like a bro like Antonia's brother to contend with. She doesn't. She has a bit more financial means. She has a skill that's in high demand. So it's a uh, it's not quite comparable. Um, and so the trap and Antonia being trapped to the land, you know, because of the things that happen to her really a, that are tied to her sexual maturation, I think is an important part of this story. But anyways, that's the end of book two of my Antonia, my favorite part, uh, mostly because it, it deals with this kind of urban experience. And now we're quickly getting to the end of, of the story. And what we think speed up from this point on, we got three more parts and they're all set years apart and they give a more panoramic view of Jim's later life. And it's Antonia is much more something he reflects on than interacts with. He meets her a few times, but it's always just for a moment here and there. You know to catch up but it's more now about Jim's life and where he goes from that and then his relationship to the land that he remembers 
So part book three is called Lena Lingard. We've already met Lena, so no surprises here. Um, Jim goes to college in University of Nebraska at Lincoln, which is the same place where Emil went, if you've read Old Pioneers, which if you're reading along with me, you, you have. Um, this, you know, actually, if you think about each of these sections as a, a stage in his life, Jim's life, you know, you have three different options given. One is the, the nature, and that's where the novel's going to end. It's going to end with where it begins, in a way, coming into Nebraska. But that's one option. Then you got the city option, right, being kind of an urban guy, and that's kind of lonely for him. Um, but the third option he gets is, is uh, this option of scholarship, being a scholar, being a thinker, a philosopher, whatever. And he gets this option from a professor. He meets a man named Gaston Cleric, a really good good name, actually. Um, use it. It could be a good um, name your kid, Gaston Cleric. You can't go wrong there. Or perhaps, well, I guess Gaston has a bad reputation now because of Beauty and the Beast. But anyways, I like the name. He really becomes enamored with this professor um, who's a poet. You know, the archetype of Gaston Cleric is, is kind of the a good scholar who gets stuck kind of in a small town. And I was reminded a lot of Song of the Lark and the, the, the uh, Thea's experience. Now she gets out of it, but the, the, word, the burden was always, you know, had I, stay, had, had I stayed in Moonstone. Right in the Song of the Lark, it was if I stay, maybe I'll just be a, a petty teacher, right? Gaston's kind of that way because, you know, there's still kind of a hierarchy of universities and professors, right? So the people at Harvard, Yale, you know, they're they're the real professors. People in the Midwest, they're they're not as important, right? So he's really being a bit. His career is a bit stagnant. Now, eventually he'll get to Harvard. So, he, you know, we don't really know what happens to him fully with his career. I think he dies at some point. It was just mentioned that he died. But he, he does move up. But at this time, he's, he, you know, this character is kind of stifled and his ability is stifled. Um, Jim, though, also thinks over his own limitations. He doesn't think he has the ability to really be a scholar, despite being really inspired by um, Gaston Cleric. And eventually Lena comes, shows up to town. She's come to work as a seamstress and to start a shop. And over the course of these, I think it's four or five chapters in book three, they start to date a lot. Um, you know, in the city, it was the, or in this, in Blackhawk, it was the dances, right? In the, in the university town in Lincoln, it's, it's the theater they go to. So they're kind of able to upgrade their public amusements here a little bit. I don't think Blackhawk had a theater. The closer they had to the dance hall or just people playing on the piano. They eventually see this play together, Camille, which apparently is based on La Traviata. I'm not really sure. Uh, I recognize the names. It's been a while since I listened to La Traviata. Um, but both were really touched by this, and it seems for different reasons. And one is maybe the theme of lost love. And I think that I do recall that that's a theme in La Traviata, right? It's this, um, you know, the memories of lost love. And this is something that really affects Jim when he starts to think about Antonia. He does begin to... Um, you know, get close to Lena. I don't think they, they don't ever have sex, so it doesn't ever become a sexual relationship, but they are dating and hanging out a lot. And this draws the attention of some other of Lena's suitors living nearby. One's like a violinist or something, and they, they're interested in Lena, and they actually confront Jim on his intentions towards, towards Lena, and you know, eventually they become friends, but it just, you get the sense of how popular Lena is as she's you know, she's got a source of income. She's hot. She's um, she's a lot of fun, too. She's really 
flirty and she's a, she's a great character actually it's one of my favorite in this novel eventually though this this whatever relationship could have happened between lena and jim is broken up because gaston cleric gets his position at harvard and he says jim you should come with me to harvard and so he says his goodbye to lena but those goodbyes are overshadowed really with memories of antonia and this is what lena says quote i i oughtn't to have begun it ought i I oughtn't to have gone to see you that first time, but I did want to. I guess I've always been a little foolish about you. I don't know what first put into my head, unless it was Antonia always telling me I mustn't be up to any of my nonsense with you. I let you alone for a long time, though, didn't I? Um, so Antonia was, gave a warning at one point to Jim to stay away from Lena and other immigrant girls. And it seems that Antonia was doing the same thing to to Lena and the other immigrant girls, telling her to, them to stay away from Jim. And her motive in doing that is not clear to me. I mean, maybe she's wanted him for himself, but she never really pursues him romantically. So um, maybe she's idealizing him the same way that he idolizes Antonia. Anyways, then we can jump ahead to book four, which is called The Pioneer Woman's Story. And at, at this point, I guess Antonia just becomes the generic pioneer woman. Um, at least that's what Cather seems to be trying to say here. Um, Jim has graduated from Harvard and has gone going to law school, but then he's he's visiting back back home and he starts to mostly what's going on in this part is Jim's getting the story of his acquaintances from Black Hawk. Um, Antonia has had a child with a man named Larry Donovan, uh, but that marriage did not happen. She was engaged to him. The marriage didn't happen, but she had the child with him. So that is the tragic experience in Antonia's life that overhangs uh, this whole part of the story. Lena's become a fairly successful dressmaker and Tony's or Tiny, sorry, Tiny is a more scandalous character. She's a minor figure in book two, especially one of the other girls that, that hangs out with Antonia and Lena. But she's essentially become a prostitute, and here's what we learn. It's, it's a nice little interesting addition here, again, about like the impact of modernity and modern capitalism on, on these immigrant women. Quote, this is what actually happened to Tiny. While she was running her lodging house in Seattle, gold was discovered in Alaska. Miners and sailors came back from the north with wonderful stories and pouches of gold. Tiny saw it and weighed it in her hands. That daring which nobody had ever suspected, what suspected in her awoke. She sold her business and set out for Circle City in company with a carpenter and his wife, whom she persuaded to go along with her. They reached Skagway in the snowstorm, went in dog sleds over the Chuknut Pass and shot the Yukon in flatboats. They reached Circle City on the, on the very day when some Shawash Indians came into the settlement with the report that there had been a rich gold strike farther up the river on a certain Klondike Creek. Two days later, Tiny and her friends and nearly everyone else in Circle City stayed up, started up the Klondike Fields for the last steamer that went up the Yukon before it froze over the winter. That boatload of people founded Dawson City. Within a few weeks, there were 1,500 homeless men in camp. Tiny and the carpenter's wife began to cook for them in the tent. The miners gave her a lot, and the carpenters put up a log hotel for her. There, she sometimes fed 150 men a day. Miners came in on snowshoes from their places, places claims 20 miles away to buy fresh bread from her and paid for it with gold. That winter, Tina kept a hotel, a Swede whose legs had been frozen one night in the camp. Anyways, you get the, the sense that she's trying to make money off the gold rush, right? And she eventually, the Swede stays with her for a while, but he dies. And then she gets brought, they, they move on to San Francisco doing the same kind of work. And she becomes very materialistic. And, you know, but she continues to 
you know, make money running these boarding houses and things. So she has kind of an interesting side story here. Um, now, he also seeks out, though, Jim, I mean, seeks out stories of Antonia's marriage. And what he finds out is that Larry Donovan, the one she was going to marry, was essentially a kind of a conductor for the passenger for a passenger train. He wanted to marry her and live in Denver, but he was kind of running a scam through the rail line. He got fired and blacklisted. And Ambrose was preparing a dowry, but when he lost his job, the marriage fell apart. Um, but Tony was left with this kid. She's forced to return to the countryside, and basically she has to go back in and work for her brother and kind of go back to the old way of being kind of a hired hand on the farm. She has eventually has her baby back in Nebraska. And so, I don't know, I guess symbolically like the baby then ties her because she doesn't really leave the countryside from that point on. She tried the city. She tried these other lives. And then it's like the baby ties her back to the land. Um, Jim expresses his views on the land, though, in very different ways. Not so much as something that's binding and tying them, but something very very romanticized because he's always looking back on it as a time as you know his experiences there as a child quote on the first or second day in august i got a horse and cart and set out for the high country to visit the widow stevens the wheat harvest was over and here and there along the horizon i could see the black puffs of smoke from the steam thrashing machines the old pasture land was now being broken up into wheat fields and cornfields the red grass was disappearing and the whole face of the country was changing there were wooden horse houses where the old sod dwellings used to be, and little orchards and red, little big red barns. All this meant happy children, contented women, and men who saw their lives coming to a fortunate issue. Unquote. I mean, there's, it seems to me there's a lot of male privilege in that sentence, right? To look at this progress and to see it, you know, all the women here are content. You know, happy children, happy wives, happy husbands. Kind of naive when we see the actual experience of these women through people that are really close to him, like, you know, it, it just shows, is he so blinkered by his idealization of Antonia that he can't really understand her life fully? I don't know. I, I think Jim's not that appealing a character at moments like this. Anyways, Jim goes to see Antonia, and he eventually does, they have their talk, and he confesses his love for her and the, the nature of his love, which isn't really sexual. And, and Jim is clearly is being drawn to the land and to Antonia. And this is sort of the end. This, the story could end here. You know, I said that about Song of the Lark, too, that there's a moment where the story could end, but we get a little bit more. You know, if it was in a movie, it might be a bit annoying. Um, in fact, I should go back and look at the movie. I think this is where the movie version sort of ends, too. It doesn't do the book five, Who's Ex-Boys. And you don't really need it, um, but it, it's, it, it has a contribution to make. Um, so let's just jump to the end. Book five, Kuzak's boys. Um, Kuzak is, Anton Kuzak is the man who eventually marries Antonia. So it's not Antonia's boys. It's Kuzak's boys. Um, Antonia has become an extension of her husband and the children are really his, not hers. I don't know if that's the point. It, if that case, it's, it's kind of tragic, but I don't think Catherine's doing anything here by accident. This fiction is sent 20 years later. Um, Jim, of course, is, you know, successful lawyer by this point. Uh, and he goes to visit Antonia. And so she's married this man named Anton Kuzak. And they've had like 10 kids by this point, I think 10 or 11, uh, all, all this different. So they go there and they're surrounded by kids. And I don't even, I didn't really keep track of them all, but there's a whole bunch of these, these kids. It's a whole, it's a whole litter. 
Uh, Antony, of course, is older. She's had a lot of kids. And the old saying, you know, for every kid is a tooth. That's certainly true in Antonia's case. So um, one of the striking things about her physically is these gaps in her in her mouth. You know, but he still kind of has this idealization for her, um, this kind of rugged frontiers woman idea. Now, interestingly, Kuzak is a bit like Antonia's own father in that he's not of the frontier. He's not a farmer. Antonia, by this point, is a farmer, though, and she knows how to run the farm. And she's she's not only being a mother and raising these kids and birthing all these kids. She's sort of running the farm and teaching her husband how to be a farmer, something she did, couldn't teach her father to be. So if you want to look at this as a, a redemptive arc in a way, and it's not, it's not, of course, it's not Antonia's fault that her father died, but it's she's able to... She ends up marrying someone very much like her father that maybe wasn't didn't want to be a farmer, was comfortable in urban life, an immigrant, a bohemian immigrant, you know, but someone was willing to give the frontier a try. And but because of Antonia, he survives, right? He doesn't kill himself. And I guess it's another testament to the strength of of that character. Um so Jim perhaps sees what he misses in this encounter and he spends some time with the Kuzaks and he gets to know the kids and he really likes Anton Kuzak. They, they spend a lot of time talking together and the novel ends essentially with Jim just walking the land and, and getting the full feel, feel of the land. Um, and here's the final paragraph of the book. This was the road over which Antony and I came in on that night when we got off the train at Black Hawk and were bedded down in the straw, wondering children, take, whether being taken, we knew not whither. I had only to close my eyes and hear the rumbling of the wagons in the dark and to be overcome by that ob obliterating strangeness. The feelings of that night were so near that I could reach out and touch them with my hand. I had to touch, I had the sense of coming home to myself and of having found out what a little circle man's experience is. For Antonia and me, this had been the road of destiny. It had taken us to our early accidents and fortunes, which predetermined us all that we could ever be. Now I understood that the same road was to bring us together again. Whatever we had missed, we possessed together in precious, the incommunicable past. So, I, I mean, I still think there's a, there's a criticism here of this nostalgia for the past, especially when he kind of looks at it with this male gaze. And he never fully seems to come to terms with the difficulty and the, the struggles that Antonia faced. He just sees her as a strong woman and is impressed by her and kind of has this love for her. That gets reinforced by her strengths, but he never really ponders much on her struggles, and and I think that's he's blinkered by that. In the same way, he, he idealizes this land, and he doesn't really see it as a site of capitalist exploitation, uh, you know, exploitation of resources, and the, the the you know he's right so close to it. He sees it with these women in his life, right? That's the whole point. It seems to me of book two, the hired the hired hands or the hired girls, is these women being torn from their home countries dumped into America, an America that's very inhospitable culturally, economically, to these immigrants. And then when the land kicks them out or can't take them anymore, they get sent into the city to do all sorts of things, right? And that's why I think the story of, of women like Lena and Tiny are, are important, right? Because some of them are successful, right? Tiny and Lena are successful in their own way, but they get thrust, taken away from the land. And it's not really fully their choice. So I don't know. I, I, I guess I got a more critical view of Jim than, than maybe other readers. 
Um, and I think there's a way to kind of do a feminist interpretation of that, that that's going to be very hard on, on, our, on our narrator. Um, unfortunately, we, we never really get the subjective experience of Antony except in little memories of conversations he's had with her. Um, but it's always going to be filtered through his own issues. But anyways, uh, a really, really wonderful novel. I, I, I think it's the best of the Catherine novels I've read in this series so far. Um, I liked Song of the Lark, but, you know, it's a little bit tamer, I, I think. Um, Old Pioneers 2 is, is a lot tamer than this. This is a much more brutal story, certainly. Uh, we see much more the trauma of the frontier experience firsthand. It's much more overtly, I think, feminist. I mean, Thea in Song of the Lark, you know, is a is a successful career woman, a successful professional and an artist. That's not the fate of most women, right? And, you know, if Antonia was an artist, we don't have no idea. We don't we we never get access to that. We, we don't ever know her potential. He talks about Jim, I mean, talks about them as faded, like we're on this path and these paths take us different places, but we're kind of bound by these paths. Well, those paths are not just there. There's not just the random strings of fate, right? They're built by actual institutions in our world. You know, there are, there are reasons women had fewer paths to them in late 19th century America, and men had more options to them. It wasn't fate so much as actual institutions, you know, and ideologies and philosophies and political systems and everything else laid out. So I don't know. That's that's my take on it, anyways. Um, thematically, there's a lot to, to talk about in this novel. Of course, we got, uh, I guess, maturation. We got memory. We got nostalgia. That's always. This is a good period of time to always think about nostalgia critically because we're, we're kind of back to this nostalgic era. Whether it's manga or you know films and popular culture, that's always harkening back to the '80s or or, or '90s. You know, something we need to worry about and be critical of. You know, does it does it kind of get us into cycles and and help us prevent us from actually seeing the world objectively and finding actual clear paths to that social or economic or political progress? What else? The whole frontier experience, the immigrant experience. Uh, we have in this novel the first time I think that I've seen Catherine talking about sex in in upfront ways. She was a little bit cagier about it in other novels and stories that we've looked at. So. I don't know, but I think that's there's a significantly different tone here because you do have themes of domestic violence and sexual violence and abusive relationships again and again here in this story. We also have very feminist themes of kind of women finding liberation in work or in the city, in mobility, and especially characters like Lena and Tiny become stories that that provide that. But then we have other characters who really get trapped by their families. Grandma, Mrs. Shermada. Anto and Antonia eventually too. So I don't know. I didn't make a full. Usually I make a list of themes. I didn't make one here, but um, you know I think they're pretty easy to see. So I'm going to to end on that note and um, say goodbye to to my Antonia for now on. But really great one though. It's, it's if you haven't been reading along with me, do do pick out check out this book. So this is going to be my last recording for a while. It probably won't slow down the uploading schedule so you may not even if you're following along you may not even experience any jump um, but I'm going to America um, for my summer I actually hope to finish this volume of Catherine's novels before going there 
but uh, I didn't. So I'm going to have to finish up. I got one more novel by William Cather in this novel I want to look at, and that's one of ours, her World War One novel. I'll have to read that in America though, and and give my comments there. So it's going to be it's going to be four or five days before I actually am settled in in the U.S. for the summer, and then I'm going to have to read um, one of us. So that'll be a few more days. So it, it, I won't be able to record until then. But hopefully I have enough episodes already prepared that I won't slow down the uploading at all. But I'll be in a different place and a different context and maybe a different frame of mind when I'm recording one of ours. So we'll see if that has any effect. And then after after Willa Cather, I, I could look at another Willa Cather novel. I don't know. Um, I have other things I, I might want to do. So I haven't yet decided. I, I may just go to the library and see what the... You know, it might be a chance to get a novel or a volume of the Library of America that I don't have, that I may not own for a while, but I could get it through the library. So that that may be one thing I'll do. I haven't decided yet, though. So um, we'll see. If you have any recommendations, well, it'll probably be too late if you give me recommendations. Um, so I'll have to make a decision, though. If you, but if you do have recommendations for the you know more long term future, please let please let me know. I mean, I'll you know I'll, I'll just buy the volume if I don't have it already. Um, so that does it. That's what's coming up next. One of ours by Willa Cather. It'll be a three-part series. Um, as always, thanks for listening. Uh, if you have your own comments on this novel, obviously I'm only scratching the surface and, you know, there's many other ways to read these novels. So you can send me an email if you have your own f- feelings uh, at 100pagescast at gmail.com or you can uh, just leave a comment below. Um, yeah, so again, thanks for sharing this novel with me and, and listening to my comments on it. See you next time with one of ours. Oh,